Hey everyone, Artie here just to introduce today's Unlock. Now I know this is a little bit different from usual. Typically Unlocks replace main feed episodes for the week, and this week we released a great interview with Liat Ben Moshe that I would highly recommend you listen to. But we wanted to make sure that this one got out from behind the patron feed as soon as possible, so we decided to double up this week. The episode you're about to hear is our patron episode from Monday, January 16th, so some stuff at the top is older, principally our intro segment about Ashish Jha complaining about hospital capacity, though if you haven't heard it yet, it's still a great argument for why we still need universal masking. Uh, Mostly though, this episode is about what will happen when the official declaration of a public health emergency ends, and why the Biden administration shouldn't send COVID vaccines and therapeutics to the private market. Which, uh, since we recorded this, this conversation inspired a piece B and I just wrote in Teen Vogue, so a link is in the description to that if you want to check that out. Without further ado, we'll see you in the patron feed on Monday, and if you appreciate our coverage, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod to be the first to hear shows just like this. death panel patrons thank you so much for supporting the show we are entirely listener funded and we couldn't do any of this without you all we're getting close to our patreon goal which once we hit it will help us be able to start getting transcripts more quickly and more regularly so if you'd like to help us reach that goal then please feel free to share the show with your friends and encourage them to support our work as well And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, post about your favorite episodes, order a copy of Health Communism from your local bookstore or request it at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So today, Artie, Abby and I are here and we're going to check in on the latest on COVID and the Biden administration, including new reports speculating on their plan to end the public health emergency. Then we're going to turn to the op-ed pages and talk about Lena Wen's latest for the Washington Post, in which she tries to breathe new life into the with four debate, asserting that we are overcounting COVID deaths, which is the exact opposite of actually what's going on. We are undercounting COVID deaths in the United States. Meanwhile, in the real world, deaths are up. Many people were surprised to hear this when I mentioned it on our huge 2022 roundup episode called COVID Year 3, so I just want to say it again. Over 10,000 people died of COVID in the United States in December, or about 2,500 people per week. Now, jumping to January, last week, according to CDC data, there were 3,900 reported COVID deaths in the U.S. As of January 15th, according to the Washington Post, there are just over 40,000 people hospitalized in the U.S. with COVID, and the U.S. has been reporting over 500 COVID deaths a day for the last four days. Now, according to numbers from Our World in Data, right now, U.S. COVID deaths account for one in five COVID deaths globally. Jesus. (laughs) Yeah. But in spite of this, the plan to kick COVID vaccines and treatments to the private market in the U.S. continues at full pace. The Biden administration recently renewed the public health emergency, strongly implying that it was doing so for the last time. And an announcement that Moderna will be raising the price for its vaccine has become the subject of some contention, even though for some reason an almost identical announcement by Pfizer in the fall went largely overlooked. 
So let's start there. The latest of the Biden administration and their depraved push to toss COVID into the maw of the American private insurance system, especially in including some really choice statements made by White House COVID response coordinator Ashish Jha in the last week to the Washington Post. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up because before we get into the public health emergency thing itself, I think it's just really important to highlight this statement jaw made in particular Mm -hmm. this is from a piece in the washington post as you mentioned last week i'll just i'm gonna read the quote first so we can talk about it because it's just it's just just an unbelievable level of crocodile tears here so um (laughs) let me just uh here's the quote white house covid19 response coordinator ashish jaw said that the american healthcare system may not be able to withstand the continued viral onslaught straining the system's ability to care for other serious illnesses Quote, I am worried that we are going to have four years our health system being pretty dysfunctional, not being able to take care of heart attack patients, not being able to take care of cancer patients, not being able to take care of the kid who's got appendicitis because we're going to be so overwhelmed with respiratory viruses for three or four months a year, Jaw told the Washington Post. He described a scenario in which the typical winter logjam of patients begins much earlier than usual in August or September because of the coronavirus. It's a darker scenario than the administration has portrayed in the past, and one jaw said most Americans have yet to realize. Quote, I just think people have not appreciated the chronic cost because we have seen this as an acute problem, jaw said. <laughs> well, who's we have no idea. <laughs> we have no idea how hard this is going to make life for everybody for long periods of time, unquote. Oh, I love that you and Abby already had the immediate sort of same response to this, which is like, oh, if only it were somebody's job to convince the American public of this fact. Right. You know, this is a sheesh job, basically well, it saying was, that if only there was a singular coronavirus response some- coordinator <laughs> whose job was to coordinate the pandemic the response. Coronavirus response. <laughs> Sorry for misquoting you both. How dare you? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) All that comes to mind when I think about this is just like cliches. You know what I mean? This is like the biggest (laughs) we're all trying to find the guy who did this of Mm -hmm. all time. Just the the really brief point I want to make on this is that it's not like this is new. It's not like this is something that's just happening in 2023. Like since just about the beginning of the pandemic, I feel like there's been extensive reporting, like extensive chronicling. I would be shocked if the Biden administration was not aware of some of this. Right. Um, of the strain on the healthcare system and how that strain is actually going to play out and how the, the strain threatens to become chronic. And to hear Ashish Jha talk about it in these very like passive terms, as if it's just like, <laughs> yeah. you know, some kind of like a like a rainstorm that just sort of like materialized out of nowhere. I mean, it's beyond galling. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think when this first went around, you know, it's it's easy to point to the hypocrisy of this because it's obviously like, yeah, no shit. And obviously, as, as we both said, like, isn't this literally your job to be concerned about things like this? And now you're saying, oh, we haven't. And now you're saying, oh, this is just going to happen. But I think what makes this particularly offensive and the reason that I'm glad that we're talking about it first is because, okay, what is the entire reason that the Biden administration and Jaw himself has given for why they don't think that they need to push for universal masking anymore. It's hospitalizations fucking, are low. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Hospital capacity. Like I, ah! I, I drew up for this, like the, um, the Rochelle Rolensky quote from Ugh. February 25th, 2022, when they announced the introduction of the community level system, quote, this updated approach 
which was, you know, their new approach for for rationalizing, no longer even, you know, pushing for or recommending masking anymore. This updated approach focuses on directing our prevention efforts towards protecting people at high risk for severe illness and preventing hospitals and healthcare systems from being overwhelmed. <laughs> so let's just like say quite plainly, the community level system failed over yes. and Obviously. over and yes. over and, and over again. And Jaw here is saying, wow. It's too bad. Things are really bad right now because things have just gone wrong. No, no reason why. This is just nature taking its course, I guess. Wow. I never thought of it this way, but you're so you're so right. But this is like this is the Biden special. You know, Phil wrote something about the end of the public health emergency that I thought was really good that basically boils down to, you know, the futility of attempting to shoehorn something like the pandemic into like legislative time. But this is every single thing that the Biden administration is doing. It's ironic that Ashish Jha is like, oh, it's such a problem because we think of it as something that's acute rather than something that we have to manage, you know, in the long term. And that's all they've been doing. You know, they're just seeing the next six weeks, you know, on the legislative calendar, some electoral milestones ahead. And like, I guess I guess what I'm trying to say is it it feels like there has been an absolute lack of forethought coming out of the Biden administration, which is unforgivable from the White House's, you know, chief coronavirus response coordinator. It's just more evidence. This is what they want to do. They want the pandemic to end on their timeline. And if they can't make it end, you know, they're just going to make it disappear. Well, it's like there's there's no plan to make it end. There's just the plan to message the ending along. You know what I mean? And yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, irrespective of anything that they've said before or any policies that are currently in place, which I think is what this quote shows. It's like, never mind the justification before. Yeah, that doesn't matter anymore because mm-hmm. we're just talking about, again, something that we've successfully naturalized. So, you know, don't don't peek under the curtain. Just like don't, don't peek behind the curtain, even just barely to see like, oh, you know, we're we're going that's why i call them crocodile tears it's like let's complain about hospitalizations now right. when the entire justification for their reimagined pandemic response and all of the protections that they've rolled back has been well we just need to focus on hospitalizations now that's no right. big deal right and yeah. and we've sort of seen this work that's been put into decoupling masks both symbolically and actually in the guidance itself from the understanding of the pandemic and this really i think Obviously, this started happening before the community level system was implemented. But I think that 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 shift and that kind of conversation about, well, hospitalization is really the thing to be worried about. And this is where we can focus and we don't sort of need masks, whatever that was intended to do. Right. The produced result has been that essentially the entire thing has been invisibilized. I mean, hospitalization capacity is something that is not experienced by the everyday person. And I think that's the other important thing that's going on here is there's a kind of way that a lot of the way that the Biden administration is engaged in this, that it's just made it less visible, made it less obvious and made it harder to understand what's going on. So as we've got it now, they're putting out like long COVID documents. CDC is putting out long COVID documents, for example, and they don't include any recommendations about prevention. They don't mention masks once and people who were asked to comment and make edits like sort of professionals in the policy world 
who were asked to, like, you know, collaborate on these documents said that it was very clear that the Biden administration was not accepting edits or suggestions on prevention and that they were just really not interested in hearing it. And so, you know, this whole sort of framing that we've seen of, of, of this being something that is both naturalized and that they're powerless to stop and that they were sort of powerless to anticipate that is really almost like happening to the Biden administration, not actually to the population, that in and of itself is just downstream of their own actions regarding masking, regarding all sorts of prevention efforts and their own decision to really be pursuing pushing COVID to the private market, regardless of anything else that's going on, and regardless of whether that's an actually good strategy or not. And so what we have now is full steam ahead, despite the fact that like their deliberate actions have made everything worse over the last 12 months. Well, and it kind of like, I feel like what Jaw is saying here, it kind of threatens their fantasy that hospitalizations is really something that happens to like other, other people. You know what I mean? It's like not totally. really something that you have to worry about here. I think what jaw is really saying is like, Oh shit. Like even if you're one of the normal ones, you know, like if you have to go to the hospital for some other reason, that's not for COVID, you might kind of have a hard time. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, obviously no shit that's happening, but it's kind of interesting to hear him. I don't know if he realizes that he's copping to the Biden administration's like utter failure. Like, I, I think we can we can definitively say that they have failed um, at COVID, but that's kind of what he's doing. You know, you, you might have a heart attack or something normal like that. You know, that might be might be difficult to get you into the hospital for like, well, yeah, I know. Right. So I don't know. It's just. Well, which, again, was a pretense for the entire thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Because Mm -hmm. when that statement was made, for instance, the Walensky statement that I read, it's not just talking about hospital capacity, specifically with COVID hospitalizations at that same time. And, you know, previously before, too, when they started making the shift to it's not cases that count, like we don't need to worry about the case number. That's not Mm -hmm. as important anymore. Now, hospitalizations and deaths are the new metric. When they made that move, one of the reasons that they said they were focusing on hospitalizations was because they said we want to change the situation that's been happening over the entire course of the pandemic where people have been needing to delay care and thus delaying care. And thus it's been that plus the outstanding amount of additional strain on the hospital system. Also, the fact that our entire healthcare system is entirely fucked up and mm-hmm. cascadingly. The, so, I mean, there's a reason uh-huh. like the, these comments being made, for instance, she's just saying like we haven't even mentioned that she's just said these comments the same t- at like the same exact time that there was a huge nurses strike mm-hmm. going on because they're fucking underpaid and overworked. Like this is this yeah. this overall is like a disaster. And this actually this whole thing kind of, I think, perp- perfectly encapsulates why. It's very obvious if you look at like between the people working in a hospital, like those nurses who were on strike, for example, or the people having to go to the hospital, whether that's for COVID or not, like this is fucking class war, essentially. Mm-hmm. <laughs> also, the way that so many medical systems in the last 10, 15 years in the United States have been consolidated into these academic medical centers, where if you have something going on in a main hospital, you're going to have these tertiary effects into just all the other arenas of care, because all of these systems, as they've been consolidated, are now more connected. And layering on top of that, his framing of like, we have no idea how hard this is going to make everybody for long periods of time, like in the context of them 
also heavily implying to the press, like this last time that we renewed the public health emergency might be the last time that we yeah. do it. And you should expect to potentially get notified as soon as February, you know, because they have to give the states like 60 days notice that they're going to be ending it. Well, they told people that they were going to give 60 days notice. They don't actually technically have, have to do to. that. Right. But... Fair. It's that they told people they would give 60 days notice. Right. So for context, what's going on here is, um, as B mentioned last week, the public health emergency was extended once again, alongside again, Uh, reporting showing the Biden administration heavily suggesting they plan for this to be the last time it's renewed. Here's how Politico summarized it. Uh, This is from January 10th. Quote, even as COVID hospitalizations and deaths climb once again, Biden officials privately conceded the administration sees dwindling benefits in justifying the continuation of the health emergency, especially for a public that's largely learned to live with the virus, unquote. So I think it's worth just taking a second to talk about as B mentioned, they've been renewing this every 90 days since the beginning of the pandemic. Damn, if only we could think of this as a chronic as a chronic <laughs> issue and not an acute one. An acute, Jesus right, fuck. exactly. Um, they've they've uh, renewed this every 90 days since the beginning of the pandemic. That started, obviously, with the Trump administration. When the Biden administration came in, they said that essentially they promised they were going to give 60 days notice when they when it was going to be the last time, right, when they were no longer going to uh, plan to renew it. So that would mean because they just renewed it that sometime early February, we could see them announcing like, okay, that's it. So we've talked about this a lot, but I thought it was important if we could just briefly touch on some of what the public health emergency does, like what it is Mm -hmm. and why that's important. Why they why, in my opinion, they shouldn't be allowed to do this. Like we shouldn't just let them fucking do this. So, you know, for example, I think some of the big top line things that we'll mention and I'm not going to address anything like the stuff with telehealth or whatever. There's, there's like a whole host of different things that are associated with this. But the first, obviously, is something that we've talked about a lot here that um, with the public health emergency in place, the Biden administration can remain the main payer for COVID vaccines and therapeutics. Um, I think we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But I just wanted to note that as kind of like the first most important thing since they are all you know poised to get that kicked to the private market, mm-hmm. um, as we've been extensively critical of. Another really big remaining thing, and this is there's like a little bit of a wrinkle here. Um, a lot of people have mentioned, for example, when the public health emergency ends, that it will lead to this huge disenrollment from Medicaid, right? That basically, um, because of a policy instituted by Congress for the pandemic, states are not able to do the like their regular kind of ongoing redetermination process and kick people off Medicaid rolls when they determine that they no longer qualify for their extremely stringent means testing requirements. <laughs> and so um, that process has been paused basically this almost this entire time. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, while as of just a few weeks ago, I could say, oh, and, you know, when the public health emergency ends, that's when states are supposed to be allowed to start the redetermination process. Democrats already fucked that up. Like Democrats already agreed to in late December, they agreed with a Republican proposal added to like the end of year spending bill. They agreed to a proposal to basically make it so states could begin the redetermination process as as of April 1st. Mm -hmm. So already they've done this fucking own goal. And starting April 1st, we're going to see um, again, the estimates are as many as like 15 million people getting kicked off of Medicaid which is extremely fucked up. Well, and I, th- I think, you know, they're making this bargain that that in the summer, in the spring, everything's going to be fine. But 
to think of to think of like, okay, we're gonna mass disenroll people from Medicaid starting in April. Let's say they even do renew it another 90 days past April and it, you know, goes away in June and the full public health emergency is over. You know, you're looking at things like student debt repayment turning back on. You're looking at all sorts of shit hitting people at once. Meanwhile, people have maybe been disenrolled from Medicaid for 90 days. And now you're going to put all COVID therapeutics and all COVID vaccines onto the private market within the United States landscape of health finance. Like, holy shit. You're going to make things more expensive and harder to, quote unquote, access at the same time that 15, as many as 15 million people will lose their state health insurance. Let me just remind (laughs) you what Joss said again. We have no idea how hard this is going to make life for everybody for long periods of time. Bullshit. You absolutely know. (laughs) You know how hard this is going to be. Just imagine what that's going to be like in the fall. Like COVID's not actually seasonal. We saw so much transmission last summer. What are things going to be like without, you know, federal funding to make sure that people can get vaccines? We're going to see less utilization of the tools. Yeah. And just a couple of other quick things to note. Obviously, those are the really big ones. There are a lot of you know, smaller collateral damage things that I think are really important. Um, Again, I'm not going to mention all of them here. We're just doing a a kind of brief rundown. Um, But if you're interested, there is actually a really great policy brief on this from the Kaiser Family Foundation that's called um, What Happens When COVID-19 Emergency Declarations and Implications for Coverage, Costs, and Access. Um, So again, I, I would suggest that breakdown. But, you know, among them, for example, for people who are uninsured, say, for example, the 15 million people up to 15 million people that we're talking about who may be about to be kicked off Medicaid. The current system is supposed to still provide free COVID testing, vaccines and stuff like Paxlovid. That technically will go away unless they find, you know, they say that they're trying. The White House has said they're trying to figure out something, some system to replace that (laughs) and in fact have used the tight budget as it were whatever they've used um congressional inaction on funding as an excuse to say we want to spend all our money on that basket the uninsured or whatever but you know i'll believe it when i see it and i'll believe that their quote-unquote targeted intervention is working when a targeted intervention works but especially considering (laughs) what's been floated is wait wait for it aca subsidies yeah exactly um (laughs) another thing so also on like testing and, and other things like that, Medicaid is currently required to cover COVID testing, vaccines and treatments. When the public health emergency ends, it will be up to each individual state Medicaid mm-hmm. program to decide whether they'll continue to do that. Unless obviously, you know, other federal action could be taken. But currently keeping the public health emergency in place does that, especially what, considering the, the fucking crisis is ongoing. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's not like it's not like we're advocating for just continuing the public health emergency to keep it on paper like that's ridiculous um and then also you know for people with private health insurance like the health insurance that you get from your employer or from the obamacare marketplace if you think about how covid testing right now is supposed to be free or not have a copay at least i know that people have experienced otherwise but on paper it's supposed to be free um and without a copay um and how, for example, um, your pro- your private health insurance is supposed to pay for some amount. I think it's eight tests, like at home COVID tests a month that you can you know pick up for free. For instance, from a pharmacy, um, they're only required to do that until for free until the public health emergency ends. So that too, you know, will likely go away. And while technically there is a rule under the CARES Act that insurance companies are required to pay for COVID vaccines 
um, with no copay. So if you have employer-sponsored insurance, you'll still have like you know a, a free no copay vaccination or or booster. That only applies to in-network providers. So if you have ah. the experience like I did recently, ah. where you go to a Walgreens and not a CVS, and your insurance wants you to go to the other one, right? Um, you could end up paying for that because your insurance is like, no, I'm going to deny that because <laughs> you're not at a in-network provider. You know, some of this is just the regular stuff. Like we have an extremely fucking stupid country. Um, and the way that we do this is very bad. We have a very tailored and efficient system of extraction, not a country, yeah. basically. <laughs> and just a last thing, you know, I said that we'd return to the kicking vaccines and therapeutics to the private market thing. Um, important to note, as B said from the top, there's been a huge development in that. And that's that last week, Moderna said it would raise the price of its COVID vaccine to between 110 and 130 dollars a dose which at jp morgan's annual healthcare conference <laughs> the uh, ceo of moderna uh said to the wall street journal that this would be quote uh consistent with the value of the shot that that pricing would be consistent with the value and i just want to note this because um again this aspect of the public health emergency ending the uh you know kicking everything kicking covid vaccines and treatments to the private market and having it dealt with in the same way that you know everything else is dealt with in our shitty system is something that we've been talking about for a really long time here and i just want to note that while I think it's very interesting with this Moderna announcement because a lot of people may have heard about this this week actually specifically because Bernie Sanders spent the last week doing things like sending a strongly worded letter to Moderna <laughs> telling them they did not raise their prices and it's complicated because on one hand I'm like I'm very glad that this is elicited public pushback but also like I kind of have the sensation of you know where the fuck was everybody at the time when Pfizer announced the same thing in October, in October yeah. right like during an investor call October 20th, 2022, Pfizer said it would also seek a price between $110 and $130 per dose. Again, Identical. Per dose. Identical. And where was Bernie then? Like I looked, there's no, like there aren't tweets from Bernie Sanders account or whatever. And again, whatever, this is not about Bernie, but I just wanted to say, you know, maybe I'll roll this back a little bit just to say that like, I think there's a huge and much more important component of this that most people are missing which is that just because the Biden administration has said that they intend to push COVID vaccines and therapeutics to the private market does not mean that we should just let them do that. Mm -hmm. It's not inevitable. <laughs> what strikes me about this is like how obvious and how clear a political opportunity this represents for like I, people like us, you know, the perverts of the death panel, <laughs> the left, you know, whatever. And, you know, I've been fairly critical of the left and, you know, the kind of like slack organizing around COVID that has been like coming out of the U.S. left, you know, over the course of the pandemic. But I really think this is something like, you know, we have a lot of notice. We've had a lot of notice that this is that this mm -hmm. is happening. And I think that this is. I mean, it's horrific. Like what what is going to follow from like the ending of the public health emergency is just like a nightmare. And for anyone that's listening to this, like I just want to encourage people to start thinking about this as kind of a political opportunity and start thinking creatively about how to address it from like a tactical perspective, you know, in terms of like organizing or trying to put pressure on the administration because Something that I really feel like I want to leave in 2022 is just kind of like the devolution of pandemic advocacy into 
you know, things that I think are not very effective. And I just want to flag this as something that's huge and like it's coming and we know exactly how bad it's going to be. And I think there's a lot of room to be sort of creative and bold about how we can respond to it. And I mean, at risk of like beating a dead horse, remember, we were just talking about Ashish Jha pretending like all of this very intentional and deliberate movement of COVID to the private market is like a natural phenomenon that is just happening, that is happening to us that we have no control over. I think it's absolutely the moment for us to be focusing on trying to not just like call people out for the transition and the the raising of the price of the vaccine from like $26 or $19, depending on which brand, to potentially $110, $130. Like, yeah, it's one thing you can call them out. You could say like, you know, sell Moderna stock or whatever. But like, that's still not challenging. Like they're right to move to the private market and all of the work, whether it's knowledge production or policy work or frankly, like policy neglect also that's going into like allowing these decisions to continue at pace and allowing this transition to happen because it's not like letting things transfer to the private market is this kind of natural phenomenon that Jaws portraying it as. And I mean, it makes sense because he loves weather metaphors. I mean, we've seen this over and over. And I think the kind of idea <laughs> that we've we've really gotten swept up in is that now is this kind of moment of like, we've got unprecedented union organizing and this is great. Well, as we are going to see like the coming months, everyone who's just been working really hard over the last couple of years to unionize their workplace, like this is absolutely the time to be really pushing against the privatization of COVID. I mean, like, what mm-hmm. is going to happen to your benefit negotiations when dealing with paying for COVID care is going to be part of the negotiation? Like, we're going to need to be tactically considering these things in so many different arenas, especially in left organizing, where we just like have seen a lot of disengagement. And I think part of that, you know, is really because some of these arguments have been convincing. And the way that we all approach our health in general and that health is sort of structured globally, it it encourages people to look away and to to hope and assume that things won't apply to them or won't be necessary. But I think as we're going to see, you know, COVID's going to be with us for as long as it's going to be with us. And it's not something that we can continue to ignore both in analysis, planning, and in just the raw day-to-day organizing. But it's something that I think right now, you've got all of this dominant pressure to just not consider the impact of what's going to happen in the next couple of months and just not think about it. And that it's really, I think, a moment to try and push back on that. Right. Because I think I, I wanted to highlight this, I think, in in part to sort of push us to really, you know, collectively think more broadly a little bit about how we make demands and what the sort of pressure point could be. Because, the you know, mm-hmm. I understand the impetus to pressure individual companies here, but I don't think that we should get it you know, we shouldn't get it twisted. Um, the buck still stops with the Biden administration. Like yes. if you're only trying to pressure Moderna, not even Pfizer, just Moderna for some reason, without corresponding pressure on the Biden administration, then you're sort of tacitly, I think, giving into the idea that the, you know, movement of COVID care to the private market is inevitable. Right. And there's no reason it has to be I mean, like, fuck, the federal government pays for dialysis care for kidney failure right? Why not COVID? Um, Mm -hmm. And obviously that's coming from someone who also thinks the federal government should be 
as they say, the single payer and pay for <laughs> all care. Um, How dare you? How dare not, we? Right. But if you're not willing to go that far, I don't know. Why not COVID? Why not? Let's throw prep in there and insulin and every biologic drug under the sun that's so fucking expensive. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. and then maybe seize pharma or something while we're at it. I'm just saying there's so much stuff that we could be demanding it's actually a very small thing to be like no absolutely not this time frame that you have pushed saying this is the only way that it works this time frame of you know 2023 is the year that we're moving covid care to the private market like fuck that absolutely fuck that and there are two reasons that this is really important i think i'll, I'll rush through like the obvious one quickly but i think the the obvious one is One, you know, if COVID vaccines and therapeutics are sent to the private market, as we've talked about, just straight up less people will get them. Mm -hmm. If you're concerned about vaccine uh, uptake, right, if you're concerned about how many people have gotten the vaccine or how many people get Paxlovid on time when it's actually going to help them, like you should be concerned about the, you know, financial and otherwise administrative burdens that are about to be put on so many people because they're going to transition care to the private market. I mean, let me put it this way. Why are they raising the price? Not simply because they can, but because sales are expected to decline. Our booster rate in the United States is 15.9% for people over the age of five. Right. That's going to be our new high, probably. But, But also, though, if the idea of Moderna and Pfizer increasing the price of the drug pisses you off, then think about, okay, well, if it doesn't get sent off to the private market where then suddenly the price per dose becomes a market calculation and negotiation that they're having with like every fucking private insurance company and PBM or whatever under the sun, then I don't know, keeping it with the federal government where they can actually leverage on the scale of their orders to have it be cheaper or whatever. Again, that's not my main concern. My main concern is people actually getting it, but still like if that's what, if that's your main concern, you should also be against this move. Mm-hmm. You know what and, I mean? And also from a political, theoretical and organizational standpoint, you know, do you want three parties to yell at Pfizer and Moderna right. and the federal government? Or do you want 3000 parties to yell at, which will be just mm-hmm. counting like every individual Blue Cross Blue Shield plan, exactly. which is going to each have its exactly. own price and own formulary. This is our argument that we've always made on the show for years about Medicare for all. It's about creating new pathways for patient solidarity and being able to reproduce resistance at a nationwide scale. And what we're about to lose is that power in the COVID arena in a very serious way. Exactly. Yeah. That was actually yeah. my second point. So let me just really quickly. Sorry make... to jump the gun. No, no, no. Let me. I'll just I'll make that same point in my own words I guess yeah I'm gonna say it again different yeah which is the less obvious thing as you're saying B is that as soon as the federal government isn't the exclusive focal point for activist work and demands our energies and abilities to leverage those demands will be split Mm -hmm. and I'm not saying that you know as B saying I'm not saying that based on some like this isn't a prediction right this is just literally based on an observation of how other disease-based advocacy goes, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think a lot of people, like especially for whom maybe COVID is their first rodeo in like the state abandonment arena, right, may not realize the degree to which that is so fucked in the U.S. Um, because in the U.S., what happens is, you know, disease-based advocacy organizations, including liberal shit like charity foundations, 
are hyper fragmented. They're made to compete with each other for scraps. And historically, this has included throwing other organizations under the bus, right? Throwing them under the bus to get, you know, secure some tiny modest gains or whatever for their advocacy group. You know, it's really important to acknowledge that if this happens, if we allow the Biden administration to really actually transfer things to the private market, which again, we've known the timeline for this was 2023. We've known that since like June of last year, mm-hmm. we started talking about this because we saw that's the first time we saw a timeline comment on it saying that this process was going to start this year. And I think it's very important for us to resist this because I think the moment that changes, the moment that rolls over, the entire fucking advocacy landscape is going to change. Mm-hmm. Um, all of a sudden, it's not primarily the federal government and the state and local governments we have to appeal to. It's all of a sudden a laundry list of state and local governments, every private insurance company under the sun, Medicaid state by state, Pfizer, Moderna, FDA, the courts, Walgreens, CVS, Rite Aid, whatever. The list goes on and on. And we are just not prepared for that. No, and no. that's what they want because that is weakening. That's ex- right. exactly, um, you know, for example, when a university administration tries to bust up uh, an effort among the graduate students to unionize, they <laughs> yeah. want you, I'm serious, like they want you to have to adjudicate your problem by yourself on a case-by-case basis. And I'm not even saying that the Biden administration wants that to happen, you know, to each and every one of us with COVID care, but that's what's going to happen. And that is advantageous for them because Mm -hmm. it sucks up a ton of fucking time and energy to have to fight your battle alone, you know, or to, or to have to advocate for yourself or to solve your issue, you know, on a case by case basis with your insurer, you know, with your, with your doctor's office, like whatever the case may be. And I think it just bodes really poorly for the future of COVID advocacy. And it's something that it's something that we can prepare for. And like, it's so, I don't know, it's like so enticing almost because like, you know, to connect all of this back to, to what you were just saying already about how, you know, many fewer people are going to get the shots once they're transitioned to the, to the private market. It also connects back to what Ashish Jha was saying. You know, the, there is actually, there is a solution to this problem, you know, of chronic hospital strain. The solution is to, like, deal with COVID transmission. You know what I mean? Like, to yeah. manage COVID in, in kind of a sustainable way. And I feel like it's so, you know, all the pieces are kind of there for, like, I think really impactful, you know, advocacy and like really impactful organizing. But I think it, I don't know, it, it, the, the landscape is so fragmented already as it is. And if this happens, it's going to be hard. You know, it's going to be a lot of work to overcome that like additional fragmentation. Well, and honestly, what's going on here is that the Biden administration is a, like approaching the problem of COVID with the mindset of like, driving down utilization as a way to sort of fix hospital capacity, ultimately, because what is going to happen as things transfer over to the private market and become mapped back onto the existing landscape of health finance, yeah, coupled, just with, the, you know, coupled yeah. with the fact, which is 
which is rationing based, which is highly rationed and stratified and rationed again, at which almost every single point of delivery of care um, or point of service, the patient is made to feel part of the fiscal responsibility of their decision to seek care. You know, on top of the delay that people already have in seeking a, a COVID diagnosis that comes downstream of the fact that we do not have paid sick leave comprehensively. And oftentimes, if you're sick, it's not only going to fuck up your work situation, maybe your child care, get other, you know, like people are already reluctant to get tested because we're not supporting people when they get sick. Right. So let's layer on to it. You know, all of the strategies that have been plugged into the U.S. healthcare markets over the last decade that gear the system towards dealing with capacity, dealing with demand through weeding people out using mm -hmm. financial and administrative burdens. I mean, you, you, there are two ways to drive down utilization. You control COVID is one way, and they've abandoned that to do the kind of a tool Gawande one weird trick. Let's just push it to the private market. We already know that this can manage. <laughs> yeah, the down. private market will uh, institute the kind of brutal discipline that like the Biden administration could truly only dream of being able to pull <laughs> off with like the team of clowns that they have. And that's <laughs> and, the real shit of it. Yeah. And let's be real at the federal level when people die is not always bad for the economy. Right. No. When HIV AIDS was more controlled by medication, funeral directors lamented how much money they made during the worst years of the early epidemic, right? Like there are in the sort of grand actuarial ledger of human life that the federal government is sort of driven by an, an understanding of, right? Like death isn't always the kind of bad thing that we experience it as at the personal level, right? And so there's a kind of detachment that's going to always be built into these decisions, because of the economic valuation of life and because of this kind of calculus, right, of every single moment from from cradle to grave in your life is an opportunity for profit and extraction, right? Like, yeah. So in their sense, they're also almost like sort of giving the pie to the people who, in their view of like how society works, deserve those pieces of the pie, which are insurance companies, which are, you know, Pfizer and Moderna, they don't want the responsibility and they don't want the hassle. And also, like, based on the way that they understand how healthcare works and what they believe about health finance, these are the people who deserve to be managing this, who have that expertise and who have that experience in, in doing these things that they don't want to have to do. And fundamentally, what we're really looking at is this kind of prioritization over using strategies like privatization over controlling the disease. And that's that's an expensive cost socially. But, you know, it's it's totally in keeping with the individualization of health in the United States. And it's totally in keeping with the culture of health finance that everyone has become quite accustomed to. Well, this is why it's so important to understand the political economy of health more broadly than just what's going on with COVID. Because if you just go, if you just look at COVID, and I think that, you know, I think this explains the confusion that a lot of people experience when they first, you know, start 
to really dig into this, if you just look at COVID, it's going to appear confusing because based on the rhetoric that everybody uses across society, you're just like, how could this be? How could this possibly be? And the answer is it's this way for everything else. And it's about Mm -hmm. to be, you know, even more thrown into that regular ringer of what every other hyper divided, you know, disease or, or condition or specific advocacy thing is thrown into, which is, you know, again, yes, the federal government will remain one of, if not the main sites of, you know, contention if this process is completed, right, of switching it to the private market. But but the responsibility is going to be fundamentally distributed. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it's it's a bummer to have to say this, but basically the in addition to saying we should be focusing our energies right now, I think if nothing else on keeping this ball in their court, basically. Um, on the other hand, as much as it pains me to say, I have to say, if this does happen, what I would just like to say about this, since we're having the conversation now, is essentially remember this moment. Because, first of all, as we know about the political economy of health, like and the things we've been talking about, mm-hmm. this will happen again with something else, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's soon or later or, I mean... Maybe it's all the time. Maybe it's infrequent, but something like this will happen again. And it's important that we learn from this and see really what happened. And also to understand that or to understand rather how things were, watch how things get fragmented and then make damn sure that we are stopping anything before it becomes, you know, throwing other groups under the bus. In other words, if and when this constituency gets its attentions divided, if you do organizing, especially if you're newer to this work, please just remember that the gains made on the back of somebody else are not gains. Those, <laughs> you know what I mean? Those, yeah. Yeah. Those are hard losses. Yeah. Yeah. Hard, hard well, losses. Just to kind of cap off, I guess, what you were saying, Artie, understanding the political economy of health, you know, which is a massive, like, ongoing undertaking you know for everyone (laughs) like me included um but it's crucial because it helps you to see because all the shit coming out of the biden administration is so morally heinous you know what i mean it makes no sense according to any type of like ethical conception of you know how something like this should go but if you (laughs) understand the political economy of health you understand how mass death privatization, you know, fragmentation, individualization, you understand how all of these things actually solve pressing economic and political problems for the Biden administration. And that really clarifies where your attention should be focused, what their points of concern, what their points of like worry and vulnerability are and where I guess their plan is, is vulnerable to, to pressure from, from below. So you know, I talk all the time about political education and I think it's really important. And I think it gets sadly, you know, I mean, like that's the whole reason I'm, I'm on death panel. That's what I'm trying to do here. Um, I think it unfortunately gets sort of short shrift as just like sitting on your ass reading books or whatever. But you know, if you're going to, which I mean is great. I love sitting on my ass and reading books, like no, no shade to that at all. But like, it's so crucial to understand the stakes of what you're trying to intervene in yeah. You know, understand the 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 political economic logic of what it is that you're trying to intervene in, because 
I mean, that's that's everything. You know what I mean? If you understand that these moves make a lot more sense, certainly, I think more sense than they make just on their on their face as, you know, scientific uh, responses. You know what I mean? Or as like evidence based responses to the pandemic or anything like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think this is all so well put and really so important. And I wonder if we should move on to Lena Wen. Yeah, you want to go to Clown World for a little? Yeah. I mean, this is. Yeah. (laughs) Should I set this up? Yeah. Why don't you set this up? Let me just walk us through this. Yeah. Um, So maybe on a lighter note, which is fucked up because this is very dark, too. But um, on a lighter note, we'll at least have more fun mocking this, I guess, than the other disaster horrors that we've just been talking about um, regarding the real centers of power, but uh, I'm sure many of our listeners may be um, familiar with and hoping that we would talk about actually this piece that we're about to highlight, which is a Washington Post piece from um, January 13th from Lena Wen, headlined, We Are Overcounting COVID Deaths and Hospitalizations. Wrong. That's a problem. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Wrong. First of all, from the top, yeah, I'm going to read some of this, but uh, absolutely wrong. If anything, as I think we'll get into and talk about in a second, uh, we are undercounting COVID deaths and mm-hmm. seeing this printed in, I mean, I I cannot stress enough. <laughs> Jeff Bezos's newspaper. <laughs> yeah, I, I cannot stress enough how just utter conspiracy theory level bullshit this piece is including and down to the fact that she's not citing a study or data or anything like that. She's literally <laughs> citing two physicians who she talked to. Not only to. is she just citing two physicians, she's like hardcore simping them. Like yes. she's like preemptively <laughs> defending them in the article against critics. Right. And I'm like, girl, she's like, get a grip. You know how everyone says COVID deaths are still ongoing and it's still kind of a problem? I found two people who said, don't worry about it. Here <laughs> they are. Anyway, I'm going to read a decent um, chunk of this, mostly because I think it makes a rather straightforward and I think self-evidently clownish argument. Um, but as usual, interrupt me as you see fit. And again, this is Lena Wen in the Washington Post. It begins, quote, According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the United States is experiencing around 400 COVID deaths every day. At that rate, there would be nearly 150,000 deaths a year. But are these Americans dying from COVID or with COVID? Understanding this distinction is crucial to putting the continuing toll of the coronavirus into perspective. Determining how likely... It's not. (laughs) It's not crucial to doing that. And B, the CDC also says that deaths are undercounted. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, what the fuck? <laughs> uh, when continues, determining how likely it is an infection will result in hospitalization or death helps people weigh their own risk. So, ding, ding, ding. But wait, classic. wait, 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 what? Like, even if deaths are being overcounted, which they're not, how does that affect I just don't understand how that connects at all to an individual person's risk or risk perception. Well, well like <laughs> let's let's break this out, you know, for for Lena. Lena's whole line has been it's really no big deal the people that are dying. They're disabled people, they had comorbidities. Those are deaths pulled from the future. Ah, I see. It's right? not one of you. People. So what she's saying so is that normal people sick, you're yeah. good. Like Capital normal people. M, normal. Therefore, yeah. if 
you all understand that if you're not already, you know, sort of sick or slow, you know, more dying or whatever, like vulnerable, then you're good. Mm -hmm. Right. So in in Lena Wen's mind, the problem is not that 400 people are dying of COVID a day. Over 500 for the The last four days. The problem is that the rest of us, the normal people, are seeing these figures and thinking, ruh that could be me. <laughs> exactly. You know, which, we're infected with, with, a, with a foreign, you know, strain of thought, which is telling us, uh-oh, that could be me. And she, that to her is completely unacceptable. Now Absolutely I get Absolutely anathema. I mean, also just to say, like, just to throw back to our Jasbir Poir interview, this also, like, assumes that the majority is always going to be like a majority of like able-bodied people or that like the majority of people are normal and are healthy and are not subject to, you know, buildings that make them sick and bad ventilation in their homes and whatever gas stoves, whatever the fuck, not having caps on their insulin copays, you know, whatever, like the whole idea of this, like people needing to make their decision about risk in a vacuum is the priority here, right? Like trying to take away information. So, Again, what does Wen place her claims on in this article? Um, Thankfully, many people have made hay of this, but I think it's very important just to read her words straight up because it's as ridiculous as you would think. She begins, quote, Two infectious disease experts I spoke with believe that the number of deaths attributed to COVID is far greater than the actual number of people dying from COVID. I think believe that is doing a lot of work there. I've had doctors that believe that being outside when it's cold outside makes you catch respiratory viruses. Yeah. <laughs> like doctors I had, I believe mean, anything they want. Yeah. I had doctors who believed that I didn't have an autoimmune disease, but that I just really actually needed to like get out and enjoy life more. Yeah. You know. So, you know, again, for this piece, when is not citing a study or data, she's citing two physicians, uh, Robin Dretler and Shira Doran. And important to note, because uh, I don't think we'll read as much of the Shira Doran part. Specifically, Doran has a long track record of advocating against COVID protections. So one of them is like an established minimizer, essentially. Um, when writes, Robin Dretler at Emory Decatur Hospital estimates that at his hospital, 90% of patients diagnosed with COVID are actually in the hospital for some other illness. Oh, really? Quote, since every hospitalized patient gets tested for COVID, many are incidentally positive, he said. A gunshot victim or someone who had a heart attack, for example, could test positive for the virus, but the infection has no bearing on why they sought medical care. Hold on. Okay. We are yeah, talking about two different things yep. right now. <laughs> Thank two you. Two different things, Lena. You are talking about is COVID being written on a death certificate? He's talking about is someone positive for COVID when they're in the hospital? Yes. Thank He's talking you. about what's the level of hospitalization right now in ter- or what's the level of spread of COVID within the hospital right now? Oh, a fucking lot of it is what he's saying. And Lena Wen has used that to support what she's saying, which is, and therefore, because a lot of COVID is spreading in hospitals right now, it must be all written on the death certificate. We must be overcounting it. Yeah. And there's also, there's also like a fucked up, I don't, (laughs) the choice of examples is always 
something like, you know, a gunshot wound, like a broken arm. It's like, okay, obviously that is a very clear example. Yeah. If you, you know, break your arm or sprain your ankle and come into the hospital and you happen to test positive for COVID. Sure. That's totally incidental. But a heart attack? Like how incidental truly is it? It's not possible to say without some kind of detailed etiologic investigation. You know what I mean? Especially because Lena Wen's, I mean, not just this article, her entire fucking worldview, right, rests on this idea that there are there are people with underlying conditions like capital U, capital C. So yeah. how does something like a heart attack where someone incident, you know, comes in with a cardiac arrest and tests positive for covid you know, is that incidental or is it not? We know that having, you know, cardiac conditions, heart conditions makes you like much more vulnerable to bad outcomes from COVID. So like the use of that example, I think kind of undercuts their case, but also kind of like gives the lie to the whole bullshit. Of this. Like, well, and COVID can obviously cause heart conditions yeah, it can and, cause exacerbate and exacerbate existing ones. I yeah. mean, one of the largest groups of COVID deaths right now is people experiencing heart failure, Right. If you're going by outdated clinical guidelines and saying heart failure and sepsis don't count right? because they're different, even if there's been a related COVID diagnosis, right? And you're only going to go for pneumonia, right? If you're only going to go for the kind of ARDS and you're going to go by 2020s yeah, exactly. clinical guidelines and throw away any information that we learned between May of 2020 and the day this piece of shit op-ed was published, if you throw all of that out the window, sure, right? Right. That's not what actually the standards are. And right now, as much as you want to sort of pretend that like, oh, well, we could just sort of use these these like convenient cherry-picked facts to reduce fear because what the real problem is is we have all these people crippled by fear who are going to become you know malingerers who are going to think that they're sicker than they are and that's gonna you know destroy society i mean this is the kind of cost benefit calculation that lena always makes in her advocacy well i mean lest people think that you're exaggerating let me uh tell it to them in her words thank um, you which is to say Uh, So she continues, if these patients die, COVID might get added to their death certificate along with other diagnoses. But the coronavirus was not the primary contributor to their death and often played no role at all. Again, huge claim. Um, She then continues, this is where it actually gets ironic for a second. Drettler is quick to add that imprecise reporting is not because of bad intent. There is no truth to the conspiracy theory that hospitals are trying to exaggerate coronavirus numbers for some nefarious purpose. Okay, but like literally you're fueling that right now. That's exactly what you're fucking saying. (laughs) Right. And then um, when says, but he said, quote, inadvertently overstating risk can make the anxious more anxious and the skeptical more skeptical, unquote. Meaning, again, just as B said, it's about what? lowering the level of rational anxiety that people have over the ongoing threat of COVID in their lives from a fucking global health crisis. There's a pervasive myth of like bad behavioral psychology work that says that like when people are afraid, they make bad decisions that contribute to their likeliness to die. Mm -hmm. And this is the kind of thought that Lena when is really bought into. And and this is something that's been iterated in other areas 
of her work actually prior to the pandemic. So it's really no surprise to see that, you know, expressed here, especially considering the thing that I recently discovered about how prior to the pandemic in like 2015, 2016, 2017, she was identifying as a disabled doctor talking about the need to overcome disability, to live a normal life. Right. Like if we understand her starting point ideology is as being coming from there and enter it into the pandemic, it's really no surprise that we've seen the lines come from her that we have and that we've seen this kind of idea of like, regardless of what reality is, like if we allow people to understand the true scope of covid, like they're going to misunderstand their risk and they're going to become afraid and they're going to make bad decisions. Right. And that's Um, her priority. She even quotes um, what's her face, Shira Doron. Um who says in the article overcounting COVID deaths undermines people's trust in vaccines. Like just say you think the public are stupid. You know what I mean? Like don't even bother dressing it up in this bullshit, you know, like health behavior, like this half-ass theorizing about health behavior. Just say that you think the public are fucking stupid and can't handle honest, nuanced information about COVID because the reality is, you know, mortality rates are up 40% from, you know, pre-pandemic levels for people like 18 to 64. Yeah. You know, that's that's a piece of information that is alarming. I mean, um, but terror management theory says you let that out into the population. They understand that it's chaos and people exactly. start being self-destructive and society turns to anarchy. Let me read this quote, though, that uh, Abby just um, that Abby just paraphrased, um, because this is the this is the next thing I wanted to bring in, and it's a real hallmark of the entire kind of play going on here. Um, so Wen writes, both Dretler and Doran have faced criticism from people who say they are minimizing COVID, but that is not at all their aim. Simp, familiar. Simp. <laughs> they have taken care of COVID <laughs> patients throughout the pandemic and have seen the evolution of the disease. Earlier on, COVID pneumonia killed otherwise healthy people. Ding, ding, ding. (laughs) Today, most patients in their hospitals carrying the coronavirus are there for another reason. Carrying the coronavirus. Oh my God. They want the public to see what they're seeing because, as Doran says, quote, overcounting COVID deaths undermines people's sense of security and the efficacy of vaccines. Boom, there you go. My big question is efficacy. Like, what do you mean? Undermines the efficacy of vaccines? I don't think it undermines vaccine efficacy. I think what you mean is it undermines, I don't know. You're trying to suggest that it makes people less likely to seek out the vaccine. And that's ridiculous. I think if anything, again, first of all, the amount of COVID deaths is obviously an undercount. We have known over the course of the entire pandemic, including confirmed by the CDC, that COVID deaths are estimated to be something like what like a a 20 percent undercount or something like that yeah the most recent number was 24 percent there was a study uh from bu i think that came out over the summer that estimated that deaths are undercounted anywhere up to like 36 percent like yeah i'm sure it changes with time but you know yeah right exactly and and it changes with the estimate the point is that we don't know actually (laughs) how how much they're uh undercounted by and it makes sense because people die all the time for example people might die of a heart attack in their apartment brought on yeah not everyone dies in the hospital and they might not be tested for covid when they're brought you know what i mean whatever like it's not it's not necessarily the case that like every single last covid death is going to be counted because we don't have a perfect fucking we don't have this like imaginary perfect scientific surveillance society thank god honestly Mm -hmm. well this piss i mean this whole thing pisses me off but 
talking about like, okay, Lena Wen is in every sense, you know, just trying to be a good little surrogate, you know, for the for the Biden administration. I mean, she fucking sucks at this because I think her political instincts are totally terrible. But all of her work in this arena and the Biden administrations as well, though, you know, not quite so like acutely or like pungently as, as Lena Wen, they are obsessed with dividing up you know, the big monolith of like a huge number of COVID cases every day into the ones that should truly count, you know, the ones that truly matter and the ones that really don't. And it's very obvious that their thought is like, well, yeah, all this transmission is happening. And that, you know, obviously that makes them look like a fucking failure. You know, (laughs) how many years now? Like, obviously they're just a, a failure at this, but they're obsessed with, yeah, subdividing COVID cases. You know what I mean? When the reality is like every one of those cases happened, like every one of those cases represents transmission that is happening. Um, But they're they're obsessed with saying that some of that transmission just like doesn't matter and that we can focus on just the parts that do matter. But we can only focus appropriately on the parts that do matter if we completely ignore the parts that don't matter. But of course, it's all fucking bullshit because we don't have any of the I mean, it's bullshit, you know, just on principle. But it's also bullshit because we don't have any of the information that we would need to actually try to make that subdivision in anything like a real way. It's all just like completely vibes. And then, you know, it really pisses (laughs) me off when you bring in or, you know, when Lena, when people bring in things like you know, overdoses, you know, or deaths uh, related to to alcoholism, because, you know, here's the real problem, because the same kind, the same counting issues actually apply to overdose deaths as apply to COVID deaths. And if Lena Wen were in any sense, you know, a smart or serious fucking person, she might have honed in on how messed up our decentralized death reporting system is in the U.S. So I mentioned that BU study in the U.S. death reporting is handled at the state level. um, So there's no like federal death surveillance. And within states, it's, you know, counties that that report mortality data like up to the state that then gets transmitted to the federal government. This BU study that I mentioned, they actually looked at this undercounting of COVID deaths empirically, and they found that, you know, counties... I think it was like, you know, counties uh, in the Midwest and in the South were more likely to undercount COVID deaths. They found that counties with, you know, more black residents, for example, were more likely to undercount COVID deaths. And, you know, a lot of the the people that are filling out the death certificates in, in many of these places, particularly like rural areas, are like maybe political appointees who like don't really know what they're, you know, looking at necessarily, like don't have a lot of like training or, or knowledge about, you know, the disease processes or anything like that. And like that, to me, that is like the big problem. That's the big problem. That's like hampering our COVID response. Like this, this shit about over, like overcounting deaths, A, it's not happening. And B, if it were happening, it wouldn't be a problem for anyone. Like, you know what I mean? Except for the Biden right. administration politically. And that's all that this really comes down to. Anyway, now I'm shouting and I'm really sorry <laughs> for getting like animated, but it just, it drives me like up a wall because the death, like the death reporting system needs like serious attention. And Lena Wen doesn't even know what she's talking about enough to, to talk about that. And all she's talking about is like in hospital, you know, in hospital deaths and things like that. 
No, she's she's ridiculous. She's making like a a social symptomatic diagnosis and then like picking data or demanding that we pick data in order to advance that program. Suggesting data exists based on the vibes of two physicians. Right. And she acts as as a pressure group, right? Like she is kind of speaking to a dedicated audience on a kind of dedicated platform, right? And she is part of a broad pressure group sort of advancing this same not only view of like seeing society, but of diagnosing sort of COVID as a as a social sickness more than yeah a virus that's in the air. In any case, when concludes this article with to be clear, if the COVID death count turns out to be 30% of what's currently reported, not possible, that's still unacceptably high. But that knowledge could help people better gauge their risks of traveling, indoor dining, and activities they have yet to resume. What? Most importantly, knowing who exactly is dying from COVID can help us identify who is truly vulnerable. <gasps> These are the patients <laughs> so we, we need can to do protect nothing through to better protect vaccines <laughs> and treatments. Yeah, exactly. Well, again, it's this we've you know we've talked about this a couple of times, but it's this like. The intrinsically healthy person versus the intrinsically unhealthy person. And we're just the whole game is apparently sorting them out and then doing, to use a phrase, targeted protection or whatever, which really means saying, oh, we can just do some targeted intervention and then actually not doing it. And instead of saying and instead of actually doing anything, saying like, oh, well, someone proposed something Mm -hmm. that was good. Right. That was good enough. Right. I think just the final thing on this really um I think it's important to note that it's pretty damaging to have something like this specifically in the Washington Post. I mean, the Washington Post is a huge and influential um, press outlet. This is obviously just an opinion piece, but these things get carried across as news. This is much like I think how when David Leonhardt did, you know, why masks work, but mandates haven't the the kind of shot went around like all of a sudden all these right-wing accounts were saying like oh look the new york times finally saying what we've said all along like <laughs> masks don't work basically um a similar thing happened with this honestly a lot of right-wing accounts and things like that um just immediately started spreading look finally the washington post is saying this thing that like people have been kicked off of social media for saying or people who have been who have been censored for saying that like covid deaths are overstated or whatever. So there is significant damage that this does and this shouldn't, you know, this is this is I think even for Lena Wen, this is pretty this is a pretty fucked up mm-hmm. um piece to write. That being said, I just want to um and and shout out to a friend of the panel at WSBGNL um for kind of raising this point with us earlier today, but I just I just want to bring in actually this point that WSBGNL made to us because I think it could be somewhat important. Um, interestingly, I think that there is an opportunity here to kind of make this backfire on Lena Wen because even if you look at some of the stuff that's going around amongst like, you know, your more normie or liberal um, public health types today, it's very evident that we can show COVID deaths are more, most likely, if anything, undercounted. Mm-hmm. And so you know, this could be actually a very interesting and important moment to sort of flip the script and to actually kind of compel people, whether it's reporting or I think demanding of the White House, for example, to comment on undercounting, you know, for example, because we know actually through like, for instance, um, a, a 
Substack post from Jeremy Faust, for example, that like Jeremy Faust and his team have talked to the White House about undercounting. Mm-hmm. Right. And he um, says that his problem with the post column is that there's no evidence offered for a claim for which we have, quote, excellent contradictory data. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, it's interesting because this could be a moment to actually completely turn that around and not only have to sort of do the regular thing that we do of being on the back foot, which I think mm-hmm. way too often ends up being the situation, but to instead be like, actually, you know, this is a profound and important moment to actually kind of really reproduce the fact that like that number that you see that continues to be really high of mm-hmm. COVID deaths is almost certainly an undercount. Yeah. No. And I, I think ultimately that is the bottom line is that, that should be the takeaway. And that should be sort of, I think, where we end it for today. Patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We are entirely listener funded and we couldn't do any of this without you. If you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, order a copy of Health Communism from your local bookstore or request it at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. We'll catch you later in the week in the main feed. As always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. I think it's gonna work now. I think it's gonna work now. Think of one. Thinking of